This week marks 18 years since a tragedy that forever changed our nation. September 11th, 2001. As Americans, this is a day we will never forget. And for a select few, September 11th triggered a call to service that completely altered the trajectory of their life. From the Ramsey Network, this is the Entree Leadership Podcast, where we help business leaders grow themselves, their teams, and their profits. I'm your host, Alex Judd, and today's guest is one of those select few. In response to 9-11, Jason McCarthy enlisted in the United States Army and later earned a spot in the Special Forces. It was out of his experience that he would envision Go Ruck, a gear company which would ultimately become centered around people. This story is a testament to the power of resilience and what it means to serve a cause so much bigger than yourself. And it all started on September 11th, 2001. That was the big wake-up call. And I mean, it's like I don't want it to happen, but it did happen. And it changed the course of my life. And I feel like it injected our, our nation and a lot of us with a greater desire to serve something bigger than ourselves. So it was... It was a hard decision. I mean, my grandfather had been in Korea, never talked about it. My uncle was a helicopter pilot in the Navy. I didn't see him enough. It just, the military was not a part of my life. And so it took a while to figure out what that meant. And it took a while to find the courage to actually sign on the dotted line and say, send me. At some point in that journey, you make the decision that not only do you want to be in the Army, you want to be a member of the Green Berets, you want to be in the Special Forces. I've always wondered, what what is it about the wiring inside someone, or what is it about that person's DNA that says, I don't just want to go hard, I want to go all in Special Forces and take this to a whole nother level. What was the driving force behind that? The prequel to signing up was I spent about a year and a half going through the, the application process at the Central Intelligence Agency. And, you know, I just recently graduated from college and it seemed like a great fit, right? Mm. Like it could be. You know, I was also really moved by Mike Spann's story. He was the first casualty. He was a paramilitary officer for the CIA who was a Marine before that and read the story. And I just, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be that guy in that position serving America. And so went through that whole process, which is long and lengthy and it's intentionally so. And I kept asking about the special activities division or the paramilitary arm of the CIA. And finally, this, this guy, you know, I got pretty far in the interview process. And this guy, he's like, look, let me break it down for you. We don't hire the paramilitary division. You have to go through the special operations community within the armed forces first. And it was just that moment of clarity for me that, okay, that's what I need to do. So went and found a recruiter and, you know, there's this stigma against, eh, not is a stigma against the military, but there's that old thing about, you know, go to war or go to jail. Mm-hmm. It's kind of leftover things from, from the Vietnam era that thankfully, you know, good on America, we've been able to kind of squash, right? I mean, try spitting on a soldier that comes home now and see what happens. It's not going to go <laughs> well, right? And that's a testament to our society. But when, you know, there's still that sort of stigma of go to war or go to jail. Well, I'm here to tell you, I mean, after 9-11, there was a long line to get into the military. Mm. So there just weren't the officer billets quickly enough that, that I could have gone through. I mean, I felt like the wars were passing me by and I wanted to be a part of that. And so enlisted, but I specifically went through with a, with a contract that, that had guaranteed me slots to become a Green Beret. And there's a big gift to that which is if you pass all of the schools. If you pass school one, they let you go to school two. If you pass school two, they let you go to school three, et cetera. And that, that pipeline ended up being about two years and some change before I, I was 
officially a Green Beret, like so an Army Special Forces soldier. And and up to that point, were those schools and those different levels to get to kind of the level of Green Beret, was that the most grueling thing you'd ever done? It was certainly very grueling. It, no matter who you are, you will reach a point where you have to really dig down deep and find your why. And if you don't have your why, you will not choose to stay there because it's they don't force you to stay, right? I mean, you, you have to every day Every mile, every step, every new iteration, you have to choose to be there. And what was the driving purpose? What was the driving fuel for you? I mean, I wanted to be on the tip of the spear in service of America. I mean, I wanted to be the guy that was, you know, send me, you know, and the Lord asked me, shall I send who will go? And I said, send me. I mean, that's, that's engraved on a, on a statue in Fort Bragg as well. And it's just, you know, that's, that's one of the rallying cries of our community. And so that spoke very deeply inside of me. And, you know, it was really still fresh after 9-11. And it just, it was a slightly different time. And I mean that because when you have these big moments that you can rally around, people will really rally around them. And it's really, I mean, I feel grateful to have lived through that part of American history. Mm. I read something you wrote that says, I would wish war experiences on no one, but it's perspective on everyone. What does that statement mean to you? I mean, war is where you find the absolute best in humanity. Now, it's predicated upon the most banal part of our existence, right? But you will find the absolute best of selfless service and sacrifice and honor and duty and country. And, and it's a different way to live a life. Nobody's chasing the Joneses. Nobody's worried about the stupid things in our lives that don't matter. You're worried about the guy to your left and you're worried about the guy to your right. And that really builds a sense of camaraderie and esprit de corps that, you know, my time in special forces, to me, the more that I've had time to reflect upon it, I mean, it's just concentrated America. It's America at the tip of the spear. It's America at our best. And it's just, it's in small group. There's a degree of intimacy that you have in that small group in war that I would wish that perspective on everyone because we'd probably be a little bit nicer to each other. We'd have a little more empathy, right? And, and we'd be willing to do more things for more people besides ourselves. And so, you know, the, the only thing in my life that I've been able to relate it to, because that's a lot of what, you know, I've spent my my time and my career after the army doing is trying to relate some of these lessons is, you know, people think out there or people talk about how there's this huge divide between the military and the civilian worlds and nobody could ever understand what it's like and to be in war and all of that stuff. And part of that is true, right? I mean, if, if someone's shooting at you and you're scared to death, like I was, and you figure out a way to just fight through it, that's something that you take with you for the rest of your life. But from the standpoint of, of sacrifice and putting others uh, above yourself, I mean, being a father is very similar. You would happily trade your life for theirs. The harder questions are, what will you do with your life to better support them and to better support the mission that you're on together? And so in that regard, it's a very similar journey. And so I think that a lot more people can relate to it from that standpoint. 
I can already hear in hearing you talk about the early stages of your story, how seeds were being planted that probably manifest themselves later in the building this business. But it was at around the same time that you started to kind of have the idea of building gear specifically not for wartime use necessarily, but for civilian use. Explain to us where that idea came from and how you started to kind of scale that and, and what happened next. The idea was kind of Baghdad meets New York City, both, both in one. <laughs> I love that. Goruck at a certain point became an idea. And, you know, my wife was a diplomat in the Foreign Service and she was stationed in Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire, which when she told me she was going there, I had to look it up too. It's, it's in Western <laughs> Africa. It's by Ghana, you know, a, a few countries south of Morocco. Okay, right? so you're, you're <laughs> in Baghdad and she's, she's there. Is that correct? Correct. We were... It's a really long and winding story, but we were, you know, went to high school together, didn't date in high school, eventually got married while I was in the army, you know, eventually got divorced, you know, got remarried some years later, have a few kids running around now. It's just, you know, life's a very real place, people, right? Mm. I mean, it's it's messy and, and you got to love it because of, of all of that stuff and just take it in stride because, you know, if, you, if you're sitting out there wondering if someone's life is perfect, it's never perfect, mm. right? And so you just got to embrace it. And so Emily was there and I was fresh off of my deployment to Iraq and went to visit her for Christmas leave 2007. So I started building her a go bag. And what a go bag is, is what we would use in war. We would put extra bombs, supplies, you know, and you put it in the trunk of the Humvee when you go out on a mission and you have it there just in case. And just in case means in case your vehicle is disabled, you need to fight in case you run out of what you have on your person, stuff like that. So this is literally just you looking out for her and just saying, I want to make sure Correct. you're safe. I want to make sure you're prepared if the worst happens. That's exactly what it was. And, you know, she's, we are equals in every sense of the word. I mean, she's she didn't like need my help or whatever, but you know, she had different skills. I had different skills and this was just second nature to me. So made her one to put in the car, made her one to, to keep at the house, you know, a safe house of sorts. And I mean, they love a good coup d'etat in, in Africa. So these are really real things. And right after she left a couple of years later, there was, you know, RPGs and machine guns in the street and the, you know, the president ended up at the Hague. So it's a big I mean, these are real threats, and I just wanted her to be prepared. I mean, I love that girl. I wanted her to be prepared and as safe as possible, given the risks that were at hand. So we were there, and we were still married for the first time. And, you know, she was like, oh, you should do the GORUCK thing. And what she meant by that is I was planning on going to be there for a year after I got out of the Army and stay with her, and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I was going to, you know, provide some of these to, to the embassy workers or, you know, whomever there, build a business out of Some that. of the bags, right? You were just going to build some of those bags for them? Is that what you're saying? Correct. I was just going to populate the bags with some supplies that they should have and maybe do a little bit of consulting on, hey, this is what you should do just in case. So that became, you know, how to teach people about the special forces mindset, the special forces way of life, if you will. And so, you know, my marriage came crashing down. You know, we've been married for four or five years, never lived together, skipped to the end, wartime deployments. It just wasn't meant to be at that time. So went back, was sleeping on a buddy's couch in New York, kind of continued the idea for GORUCK, though. And it just manifested first into, hey, design and build or get built, I should say, a bag because I don't know how to sew. So, you know, it turned into that whole process. And, you know, that was a couple years of 
not really committing to it. So go ruck was just a hobby. It was it was a bag. And I knew that I could do something to take the military to the civilian world. I mean, special forces is not an overly militaristic type of place. I had not come from a overtly militaristic style background, and yet I'd learned a lot. So combining those two worlds felt really natural to me. And it was something you were passionate about. But hold on a second. You kind of breeze past the idea that like, well, my marriage fell apart and then I moved to New York and I was staying on a buddy's couch and I just started this company. Like that seems like a pretty crucible moment where it almost seems like, I mean, there are a lot of people out there that would not have the resiliency or the fortitude to keep going even, much less do something productive. So where did that come from? How did you keep going after hitting such a roadblock? To gloss it over and and sort of call it easy or something would be a gross misdiagnosis of that situation. It was, it was very, very challenging and things that would take me a day now or a month or six months would take me two and a half years then. I mean, it, it was, it was just one of those things where, you know, I was, I was lucky and a lot of good things happened to me at that time. And I, and I was, I got over my own ego about not asking people for help. You know, I called up my buddy and said, Hey, my marriage is crumbling. Can I come sleep on your couch? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a humiliating thing. It's a very humbling thing to have to call anybody, even your best friend, and, and ask. And, you know, those are the things you have to do. I mean, what, what else was I going to do? I mean, I could have moved back in with mom. You know, that, <laughs> you know, that could have happened. I could have just sat around and felt sorry for myself. But I had to at least do that somewhere. I mean, I basically, you know, was on a, on a one-way ticket back home from Africa and – had to figure out the bare minimums in life. And so it was really challenging. And I was lucky to kind of be able most days to put half a step forward and then, you know, some days a full step back. But, you know, over time, more days of of half a step forward, it adds up. Mm. This audience is big enough. We've got thousands of people listening around the country and around the world that we know at any given time, there's someone listening to this that is going through one of those crucible moments, one of those crisis moments. Speaking from experience, what advice would you give that person? I mean, ask for help. It's really that simple. I mean, you can't judge yourself by what you used to do or what you think you should do. It's just... You got to find some small victories, whatever those are, the smaller, the better, because you can't just conquer the world in a very short period of time when things aren't going well. And the problem is, is that our, our perspective shifts and the more down we are, the more we're looking to throw Hail Marys. And and that's just not how it's supposed to work. Mm. I mean, if things are going really poorly and You need to just focus on one step after the other. And this is true in business, war, love, and life. There's so many parallels between all of them. It's just because human nature is at at the core of it. And focus on the smallest things that you can focus on and and get some momentum behind that. Love it. So in the midst of all that, you start with something that was a hobby and then becomes a little bit of a passion project. And then these bags kind of start to become a business, explain how kind of the first stages, the very scrappy stages of starting to build and then sell these bags. Yeah. I mean, the process of, I mean, I found a design team that was based out of Bozeman, Montana by putting an ad in Craigslist, New York City in 2009. I mean, hmm. it's kind of crazy, right? And then never met them until a couple of years later. 
but you know, it started napkin sketching ideas for them. And then they would sort of transition that, translate that into line drawings and into patterns. And then they, they would build the rucks and you know, we built like six versions of, of rucksacks up until say 2010. And then had to figure out a way to get that scaled manufacturing, which is a completely different process. And now it's, of course I know that. And back then I did, I mean, R and D is completely different than building at, at volume. It's just a different ecosystem unless you're really big as people would think about big brands. And then you, you have them both kind of lockstep, right? But yeah. So started over with a vendor and, you know, the first shipment of rucks that they sent, which was every dollar I had and then some was, you know, rejected 90% of them or something and sent them back and said, you got to fix them and do all that stuff. And, you know, you're paying to ship 500 rucks across the country a couple of times. It's not fun, you know, but quality was always one of those non-negotiables for us, like special forces, life or death quality. I mean, my buddies were absolutely testing prototypes of this in war they were going to get some of the earliest versions. So, mm. you know, I, I would make sure a buddy and I would would check all of them. I mean, the, as much as you can possibly check a rucksack, we, we would check it for quality control stuff. And, you know, the other problem was once we had them and they were good, nobody wanted to buy them because they were expensive and they're built in America and we're a new brand and upstart and there's no value statement in people's minds about who we are or what we do or why they should pay 300 <laughs> bucks for a rucksack. I love how casually you just say the problem was, is we started to a business, but no one actually wanted to buy what we were selling. That is, I would call that a problem, but it occurs to me that you're like, okay, I knew that I wanted to make these bags, but I kind of knew I had a sketch on some paper, but I didn't know how to design them. So I figured it out. And then I didn't know how to actually build the design. So I figured it out. And then I didn't know how to actually do the R and D for scaling that model. So I figured it out. And then I didn't know how to sell them. Like you have an unbelievable figure it out factor. Most of those hurdles, I feel like most people would just hit the eject button and be like, okay, this wasn't meant for me. Did that come from the military or is that just natural wiring? Is that in your DNA? Where does that come from? I mean, first there's too many eyes in there, right? I mean, there was always, you know, I didn't figure out how to sew. I made friends with people, right? Yeah. And so to properly answer your question, I mean, I think that people should do what they're good at and what they love and what they're passionate about. And I think that usually those are pretty interconnected. Mm. You know, you're passionate about what you're good at and, and vice versa. I mean, I love listening to people play the piano, but I'm not a, uh, <laughs> I'm not a piano guy, you know? And so, look, I mean, there, there's upbringing. There, is it nature or nurture? And to me, it's always both because people are born a certain way and then they, they evolve. And the more that you do, the more that you learn, the better you get. And so... The classic special forces mission, though, that's the only most important job I, I had out of college. And it shaped me, right? Mm -hmm. It shaped my outlook on the world. And how could it not, given how great that community is and the people who serve in it? The classic special forces mission is you go into a foreign country and you work by, with, and through local partner forces to achieve a desired end state, to achieve your mission. So you're constantly working with others. You're building out networks. You're getting them to do the work for you, but you're going with them on those missions. So that part just kind of came naturally to me. And that's been kind of the foundation for how we've grown GoRuck. And the no quit thing, I mean, I think that that's a lot of 
people have various degrees of threshold. And it's not as simple as I was born with this threshold. Because look, you go through and you accomplish something, you gain more confidence. You go through, you accomplish something else, you gain more confidence. You fail, you get a setback, you revisit why you did that, you come back stronger. That's how it works. And you know, if you're not looking for the shortcuts and you're looking for the long play, you can do anything you want in this world. And so, you know, that's been the series of it. I mean, there's been so many failures. There's been a lot of dark, really, really dark days at GORUCK. And yet the key was like, you can lick your wounds for a night or a week or whatever, but you get back up and you keep going because the initial passion, the foundational passion is there. And I love that, Jason, because so much of what you just said is now central to what GORUCK stands for as a company. You say over and over and over again in your marketing, your branding, everything y'all put out is that you are a people first organization. Explain why that's so important to you and explain what that actually means in action. Right. I mean, GORUCK is a gear company by mechanics. I mean, we build rucksacks, we build footwear and we build clothing and apparel and, and all of that stuff. But I mean, at some level, a company becomes an extension of the founder's personality and what matters to you matters to the company because you create a certain culture. And I just never wanted to be just a gear company. It just never appealed to me. I mean, my initial goals, which we talked about before, I mean, after 9-11, I was going to go be a case officer for the CIA or a paramilitary case officer for the CIA and be serving wherever America needed me. And I can imagine that life, right? I mean, I have a bunch of friends who live that life now and, you know, check in from time to time. And it's always like, man, I wish, my only regret is I wish I had more than one life to give for my country, right? I mean, it's like, I wish I could do more. And that life, I would be no less or more happy. I mean, I'm happy. It's just a matter of how, how life goes sometimes. But it seems like the people are at the core of what you really want to be involved in, huh? Yeah. I mean, that's always what it's been about. I mean, America, what are we? I mean, America, when you say America and everyone says, I love America, right? I mean, what does that mean actually, right? You can't love America, but hate Americans. It doesn't work. America is us. It's all of us and it's our way of life. And so I'm willing to fight for that way of life. And I'm willing to fight with a gun and I'm happy to fight without a gun, right? I'd rather be in peace. And so you start to say, how does that translate to a company? And, you know, America needs people that are willing to put others before themselves. We need stronger communities. These are sort of really grandiose notions that it really just means stronger relationships are at the core of that, right? I mean, the more that we get focused on privacy, and by that I mean, you know, you don't know your neighbors, you're not a part of your community, Everything gets delivered to your door and it's just a very sterile life like that. I mean, we're missing out on something. And so I'm all for fitness and getting together and putting a ruck on and doing some work together. As an equal part of that, I'm all for sit down at the dinner table and talk to your family. Invite some friends over and sit and talk to them. Go out to dinner, talk to them in the real world as people and I think that that kind of stuff really fills up our souls. Just in a, That's just a non-negotiable for us, just in terms of the desire to impact people's lives. Hey. 
Hey, folks, I started Ramsey Solutions on a card table 30 years ago. Over that time, we had too many different systems, and they slowed us down. That's why we now use NetSuite. NetSuite works for us, and it'll make a difference for your business, too. Whether you're just starting out or you're well on your way to becoming a multi-million dollar company, NetSuite can scale with you to help communicate across departments and plan ahead better. See, you know your day-to-day forward and backward, but stuff like analytics, accounting, human capital management, all that might be another story. Or maybe you're not tech savvy. Well, that's okay. NetSuite will help your company in your situation increase your speed. More than 37,000 companies use NetSuite to know their numbers. And right now you can download NetSuite's free KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance at netsuite.com slash Ramsey. That's netsuite.com slash Ramsey. This episode is brought to you by Trainual. Even when you're great at running the day-to-day, a lot of leaders struggle to delegate. But delegation is a critical leadership skill and empowering your team by building that skill just takes having the right system in place. Well, Trainual is that system, and it's a game changer. Trainual is an easy-to-use app that helps document and organize everything about your company in one place. Clear outlines for every role and responsibility, step-by-step training for all your SOPs and employee handbook content, an org chart and directory. You can build accountability tests. Employees can even use Trainual's powerful search to answer their own questions. Companies using Trainual are cutting training time and related costs by up to 75%. Get started with over 300 templates and their world-class support. It's time to get your entire team playing from the same playbook. Visit trainual.com slash entree today for a demo and get 15% off your first year with code entree15. That's 15% off at T-R-A-I-N-U-A-L dot com slash entree with code E-N-T-R-E-1-5. How does that, because I think so many people listening to this probably hear what you just said and they give a massive fist pump and they're like, yes, I agree with that. I want more of that in my country. How does that affect day-to-day leadership? How does that affect teamwork? How does that affect hiring? How does it affect business in general? You have to have a strong culture to really attract the right person more easily. I mean, what do you stand for, right? I mean, there's two great answers in the world, yes and no. Maybe is the world's worst answer. Uh, I, I may be like working here. That's just not what we're after. You want people that are passionate. To inspire passion, you have to have a strong culture. You have to stand for something. That doesn't mean that you have to pick one fringe issue and just stand for that, but it could mean that. It means that you have a way of life and people are attracted to that. And it becomes easier through that filter to see who's just not going to work in this kind of an environment. And, you know, one of the things that we have is, you know, there's there's a lot of autonomous decision-making that happens. People are empowered to do that. And that requires somebody who actually wants that. There are plenty of people who do their best work if you outline something and then they go execute. And we have some of those people as well. There's also just an adaptability factor. And so, you know, people come through our hiring process. We put them through our events. Foundational to everything in special forces was physical fitness. And it's not like we're just 
out here every day, all day, rocking together and never working. I mean, I spend a lot of time in front of a screen at work. But there is that kind of, we all need to be more physically active, and that's part of our culture, right? When we're done at the end of the day, it's there's a, a fridge full of beer. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about kind of you getting to the point where people weren't buying the bags, but clearly now, I mean, bags are selling like crazy. So how do we bridge that gap? And then where did events come into the picture in the story of how you were building the business? It's kind of an accident. So a buddy in business school, we were just at the start of some class. And there was this other event series out there called Tough Mutter. He's like, you know, because in business school, they teach about synergies and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. It's just these buzzwords, right? What does that actually mean? Well, I'll actually tell you now, right? Because it's not a completely fluff. But so there was this event up and coming called Tough Mutter. They had not run an event. And GORUCK had nothing. I had nothing to lose, right? So you know, it was coming to not too far away from DC. And he's like, you should send them a note and see if you can work together. Synergies, right? And so I sent him a note and it just ended up being good timing. I went up and met the, the co-founders of Tough Mudder and we started a handshake partnership where I was going to kind of build out fight clubs before Tough Mudder would go on. And that turned into the Go Ruck Challenge. So what that meant was that they tasked me to go out before the second ever Tough Mudder after we got a bunch of Special Forces guys to run the first Tough Mudder together in, in Pennsylvania, which was May 2nd, 2010. I went out to San Francisco and there were, you know, 18 people or something. And that was the first ever Go Ruck Challenge. And then we went together to the Tough Mudder that was, you know, two weeks later in Lake Tahoe. But after that first Go Ruck Challenge... It's like, this is what GORUCK is. This is how we're going to build GORUCK. Because my goal was to take pictures of the gear in use and sort of share those pictures. And I thought, oh, well, people will eventually buy them, right? Great. And I didn't have the how. I didn't know how to connect it. But that eventually became the challenge took on a life of its own. And the GORUCK challenge, which you know now we lead 700 a year all over the world, you know, became the sort of engine of growth and the monetization side kind of remained the rocks. And in the early years, though, there was a little bit of on the cash side of the hustle side was if I launch more challenges, more events, I'll get more cash today. And since I'm leading the event, it's going to be free for us, right? Because my <laughs> that's how it works. And so I can use that cash to put down payments on inventory of rocks that I need to build because, you know, eventually if you're big enough, you can get things like net 30 payment terms on building gear. Well, when you're small, they want half down up front and then you owe half when it ships. So you're just burning cash and then you're burning inventory costs. So there was this kind of magic combination of the two that let us hustle our way forward without running around chasing the venture capital circuit. So the events were supporting the gear, the gear were supporting the events. That sounds a lot like synergy, man. Call it a buzzword if you want, but that sounds a lot like synergy. You know, synergy. hustle isn't always about, you know, the ex uh, dragging the growth curve forward in Excel. Sometimes there's real work to be done to make the synergy actually work. Yeah, so <laughs> I love that because you have your MBA. You clearly understand the strategic side of business, but sounds like the thing that actually got this thing up and running was just getting out and not, it wasn't sitting in a room with a whiteboard and brainstorming grand ideas. It was just kind of doing stuff. Is that a fair assessment? And why do you think that was the case? 
you have to differentiate yourself. And, you know, if you're willing to work harder, good things will happen. And, and that doesn't mean, so someone out there listening is like, yeah, that's right, work harder. That doesn't mean that forever you should work from seven until midnight and, you know, neglect your family, neglect your life, make yourself miserable. It just means at that time in my life, I had a lot of time. I mean, I was single. I had a dog. Thank God I had a dog. And that was my life. I, I skipped a lot of business school because I was working. I did the bare minimum in a lot of classes because I was working and I was flying out on a Thursday and doing 75 miles in a weekend, counting all the site surveys and recons and stuff. And then, you know, I'm taking a flight back drooling on myself Sunday night and, you know, going to my friend's house, watch my dog. They're shoving like two houses worth of food down my throat from the whole weekend. And I go home, pass out. And like, I don't want to go to school Monday morning, man. It's not happening. I'm not necessarily proud of that because I wish I had done more. I'm like, that was just the reality. There was a lot going on. And I know there's a lot of people out there, right? Where, you know, you got a family, you got kids, you got someone who's sick, you're taking care of, you know, life happens. And you got to take the long play. And at that time in my life, I just, I had a lot of time. So you have to be willing to waste a lot of time because I certainly did. But it was through trying a lot more stuff. I mean, and it goes back to sort of the way of life that I learned in, in the Army and Special Forces. It sounds really counterintuitive, but in matters of violence, being on offense is safer. So if someone ambushes you, you are supposed to get up and counter ambush. Period. The end. That is straight up doctrine. Mm. And you know, everyone loves a war movie and everyone loves sort of war analogies, but what does that mean in your life? What that means is when you get knocked down as hard as you can possibly get knocked down, you have to pick yourself up and charge. And that, it was just a series of moments like that in the first couple of years. And it was a, a huge volume of time that I had to dedicate to, to this because I didn't want to fail. Man, that's huge. I'm having trouble sitting down right now. I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> so in preparation for this interview, uh, me and, and our director of media, his name is Zach, we got to do one of your events. It was a Go Ruck Tough. And for the people that are listening to this, I mean, what it is, is it's started at 9 p.m. and went to 9 a.m. It was 12 hours. We walked, I think, almost 20 miles with 30 pounds on our back across the city. They had us picking up sandbags. They had us jumping in the river, doing bear crawls. I mean, it was insane. It was emotionally draining, mentally draining, physically exhausting, and amazing all at the same time. I told people the day after it was dreadfully amazing. So number one, if you're listening to this and you're into that kind of thing, you got to go do one of these events. You have to go find one in your area. But I'm curious from you, it was so fascinating just to sit and watch the team that we were doing it with that night. It felt like a giant social experiment, just watching how people reacted to the pressure, to the stress, to working with strangers. What's the biggest thing that you've observed or learned about people in hosting these events and putting on these events over the course of several years? That's a, that's a really good question. I haven't been asked it like that ever before. And the biggest surprise to me, and maybe this is relevant given, you know, the should women be in special forces stuff and all of that is in all of my training, I mean, I went through infantry training and then I went through advanced infantry training and special forces training. And I, I never went through training with females. I worked with them 
and obviously my wife served in in the government and and all at a very high level but i just i never did that type of stuff in in the army never mm -hmm. served with females and yet from the very early stages of go ruck i just i wanted it to be inclusive like i don't care if you're young old black white male female pink polka dotted whatever i don't care like can you do the work you want to do the work let's do it right and yet you know what i've been most surprised by is just how somehow in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. before the sun comes up and it's just that miserable time when everyone's tired, you can find the smallest person who, you know, wasn't able to carry all the weight and wasn't able to be the biggest, baddest stud underneath the log that you carried for two hours or whatever. And, you know, all of a sudden that person will be the greatest motivator for the team, like the best leader that the team has and we'll just task organize and we'll direct. And what I've experienced over time is that that is usually females <laughs> and they're not out there doing nothing either. You know, a lot is expected and, and everyone who shows up does that. It's just, you know, we, we underestimate too often a special forces guy will say, how could a girl ever do this job? I mean, it's it just, those are, those are things that you would think there's things that I've thought right? From back when. And I've just, I've seen amazing things come from people that I would not have expected it. And that, that will really lift you up in your life because you know, when you're walking around after doing your event, right? You, you know that there's so many more people out there that have so much more in them than they knew possible, but that you shouldn't judge them based upon just how they look. Yeah, that was my biggest takeaway from the whole night is that people are capable of so much more than what I gave them credit for. It was unreal. I can't wait to do another one. I I, I need to we need to check it out right now. I need to sign up right now. <laughs> We're talking about it. we just need are to Are you sign motivated up. people? Are yeah. you motivated? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Related to that, the idea of servant leadership is really popular right now. You have a very unique perspective on this. How do you define servant leadership and what does servant leadership look like in action? I mean, we have a thing. It's, it's called, it's not about you. And so, you know, I don't know all of the buzzwords and I don't study enough on all of that. It's hard to keep pace with all of the trends. And yet what I will say is the kind of leadership that I learned was from the guys that I served with. And those are my benchmarks. And so those are the guys that whether you were an officer or an enlisted, no matter what your job was, you were on the gun trucks on the mission. You were held to standards that you wouldn't ask someone to do something that you couldn't do or wouldn't do. You know, you train together, you fight together, you live together. And the more that we have that type of mentality, uh, the better. In hearing your story, what is the encouragement or action that you hope people will take out of hearing what you've been through and what you've been able to do? I want people to be more active and, and I don't just mean put a rucksack on and go do miles. It's just in your life, I want you to be more active. You can do it, right? We spend a lot of energy, you know, being tired. It's just, there's so many things. It's such a beautiful world. There's so many great places. There's so many, there's so many great trips that are within 50 miles of your house, there's so many great people that you haven't seen in too long. 
There's so many mountains out there that you can go climb. There's so many cities to explore. There's so much cool stuff out there to go experience. And watching TV and playing on your phone is not experience. It's just not. It's a substitute for boredom and it's worse. And, you know, I have a phone too. I have all the social media accounts and all of that stuff and, I, and I'm on them. But we have to learn how to moderate ourselves and still be more physically and socially active as, as people. So, you know, be more active, move more, take more steps, move more, right? And then the more that we start to focus on all the cool things that we can do at any budget, by the way, just do more stuff, the less we'll focus on, you know, all the things that just don't matter in life. Final question for you. You've been a part of the special forces. So you've been a part of the backbone of American democracy and freedom. You're now a small business owner. So you're a part of the backbone of the American economy. Is the American dream alive and well? The short answer is America's best days are in front of us, period, the end. Without turning that into just, you know, a buzz type of statement or, a, or an empty statement. I mean, we need to get back to the roots of serving America. And you don't owe your country nothing. You don't owe your community nothing. And in fact, many of you have it in you and would be really fulfilled as people if you would just dedicate your life to a cause that you felt passionately about. If you don't worry about what your starting salary is, if you don't worry about if you can make ends meet, I get it, right? But if we start to focus on what makes us happy and if we start to just do more of that for each other and if there's a huge call to service, what's happened to the JFK Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. What's happened to that? These are generational things. We have to see them. We need a resurgence in that, not just because it's great for the man, right? I'm not talking about that at all. The man being America, which by the way, it is. It's actually great for you too. It's great for you to serve something greater than yourself. You know, God, family, country stuff, right? I mean, some level of, those three things you can relate to, God, family, country, and serve those and go after those. And, you know, all the other stuff is just noise. And so, you know, it would be nice to see more people, more young people, because they're our future. And it's really easy to kind of know that and see that every day as a father. And they're our future. And we have to bring them up with that kind of mindset. And to do that, we have to also live it. Well, from myself, on behalf of our entire team and on behalf of our entire audience, thank you for your time today. But more than that, thank you for your service to our country. We're all better for it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me, guys. It never gets old. The story of someone who had a compelling vision of a future that did not yet exist and did the work necessary to create it. But I think the piece of Jason's story that just takes it and magnifies it by a level of about a hundred is the fact that the theme of service is woven throughout the entire thing. And I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity right now to recognize the men and women who listen to this podcast every single week and are either currently or have previously served as a member of our nation's armed forces. On behalf of Entree Leadership and the entire Ramsey Network, we recognize you 
and we are grateful for your sacrifice that made it possible to experience the freedoms that we get to live out every single day. Well, hey, if you enjoyed this conversation with Jason, many of you are aware that the story of our organization is very similar. Dave started this company at a card table in his living room because he was compelled by a sense of purpose, by a vision that was bigger than himself. And he built that company from a card table in his living room to what is now a 900-person organization that is changing the financial and leadership landscape around our country today. Now, if you want to hear Dave talk about that entire story, I've got two options for you. We provide the link to the interview that he just recently did. The link to that interview is in the show notes. So go check out that interview. Also, Dave talks about this entire story of what it looks like to build this business in the book Entree Leadership. And our team has made it possible for you to download the first chapter of that book for free. If you want to download that chapter, you can text ELBOOK to 33444. That's EL book, no spaces to 33444 or click the link in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Entree Leadership Podcast. If you did, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. For a chance to win a $25 Amazon gift card, you can review this episode by clicking the link that's in the show notes. And be sure to follow us on social media at Entree Leadership. This episode was produced by Tim Hole and it was edited and mixed by Will Rudder. I'm Alex Judd, and on behalf of the entire Entree Leadership team, thanks for listening. We'll talk with you again very soon. If you enjoy this podcast, you should check out other great podcasts from the Ramsey Network, like The Chris Hogan Show. I am so excited to be able to talk to you all week in and week out. We're going to talk about your money, your life, your dreams, and your goals. You know why? Because I'm your coach. Whether we're talking about building wealth, paying off your home early, investing, paying for college, and guess what? How to become an everyday millionaire. We're going to focus on taking your calls because you matter to me. Together, we can do this. This is The Chris Hogan Show. To hear full episodes, just search Chris Hogan wherever you listen to podcasts or go to chrishogan360.com.